Retro Hangover supported via Patreon by listeners like you. We would especially like to thank patrons Lyle McCarns, Ashton Ruby, Randall Quiggle, Tony G, Studstill Smash the Milkman, Katie Quigg, Paul Romalo, Raging Demon JC, Megan Caruso, Mast Keaton, Andrew Laguori, Ozzy Garcia, The Retro Vixen, Adam from The Good, The Bad, The Backlog, Thunderdome Gaming Society, Discimera, Jenny E, Rick Firestone, Parallax Puddles, Soha, Keith Gasper, Dave Jackson, Eric Guess, Kayla Jackson, Nomad from the Retro Wildlands Podcast, Ash Event, Alan Bingham, Storm Beagle, Ryan Player One, and Mike the Ref from Backbreaker Gaming. Your continued engagement and generous donations are deeply appreciated. Open your ears and crack some beers. You are listening to the most recent episode of Retro Hangover. and classic gamers welcome to the podcast where we make melting movie moves murmuring metal gear this is retro hangover i'm your co-host chris copleen with special guest dave jackson from tales from the backlog and as always your host shane dick Wow, it's just it's just Dick Dragon. There's there's nothing else. This is because this is a Metal Gear Solid episode, and that is Kojima name. Metal Gear. Metal Gear. In honor of Hideo Kojima, you don't get any any special things to your Dick Dragon because that you would be like a a, a purple dude on roller skates in Metal Gear Solid Six. <laughs> I was gonna say. I mean, I, I, I guess. I mean, in, in a game fire. with you know people like Revolver Ocelot, I guess. I guess Dick Dragon works, right? It gets weirder, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. And welcome back to the show. It feels like you were just here not too mm. long ago, Mister Dave Jackson. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you guys for the invite back. Yeah, it does feel like I uh, I never left. I actually I haven't left. I've been here in this uh, this virtual recording booth this whole time. You've just been really quiet. It's yeah. it's amazing how quiet you have been. I, I admire that quietness. Yeah, I can be quiet. That's, right. That's what I learned at the uh, what was that school in Arrested Development where they teach you to neither be seen nor heard. <laughs> Elementary school. <laughs> yeah. 1950. I don't know. Tactical podcast espionage. That's right. Yeah. That, that's it. Yes. Yeah. I've been in a yes. cardboard box in the corner the whole time. <laughs> smells mm. like wolf piss. <laughs> mm. And now you're hitting on everyone on Kodak. I'm surprised you haven't hit on us yet. There's still time. There's still time. We're just getting started. Indeed. Yeah, I haven't given him my radio frequency yet. <laughs> ah, need to make little smiley faces at him. Maybe get in a nice disguise and then like unfurl your hair and be yeah. like, look at me. No. Yes. Mm. But as you can see, if you clicked on this episode, it's because we're talking about Metal Gear Solid today, as we're really referencing here in the beginning pretty hard. We're not going right into that if you know this show at all. And if you don't, hi, welcome. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast. But before we get into the show, we like 
to talk about what games we have been playing lately, as we are wont to do. Mm. And we will start with our guest, Dave Jackson. What have you been playing lately? Uh, guys, my, uh, my life is Baldur's Gate 3 right now. That is oh. <laughs> basically all I'm spending my time doing. I'm, I'm doing like my podcast homework a little bit, but it's mostly Baldur's Gate 3. I bought the game like five days ago now, and I got like 15 hours into it already. So that's what I've been doing with my gaming time. And it is fantastic. It is everything I hoped it would be and a little bit more. You've, you've seen the hype, right? Like it's the top rated game oh, of yeah. the year, like one of the highest rated games of all time on the, the aggregator websites. It is great. Like I'm, I'm looking at those scores. I'm like, yeah, it checks out. It's a really great game. We talked a little bit on our KOTOR episode about the first two Baldur's Gate games and how they're a little bit hard to get into if you're not like an expert in that D&D system. Baldur's Gate 3, though, they do a better job of onboarding people. And it turns out that fifth edition D&D is just easier than second edition. Who would have thought? So yeah, go figure. Yeah, <laughs> it makes a lot more sense. So it's everything like I love Divinity Original Sin 1 and 2. They're two of my favorite games ever. And Baldur's Gate 3 is that, but with a better story. So it's like 15 hours in, I'm probably like 3% into the game. Like with all the content that it has, I'm comfortable saying like, this is probably one of the best games I've ever played already. Like unless like the oh, wow. end of it is just terrible, but I don't really anticipate that, you know, it's great. Damn it. Yo, you guys, you gotta, you gotta stop yeah. telling me these things, man. <laughs> You're like the fourth person in just as many days yeah. to be like, yo, bro, you play in Baldur's Gate 3? And I'm like, no, man, I don't have time for a <laughs> 300 hour CRPG right now. And they're like, but bro, bro, it's like the best game ever, bro. And I'm like, God damn it. Okay. Yeah, I get yeah. it. Like uh, that's basically, mm. basically what it is. I mean, I, I just don't say bro that often, but that's, that's also me. <laughs> Add me to the list. Uh I want to play it, but man. Yeah, it, it's so good that I, I looked at my list of things I had planned to play for Tales from the Backlog, and then I looked at Baldur's Gate 3 and I, all the talk around it, and I was like, I'll just check it out. And now I'm like going into my spreadsheet, <laughs> like copy and pasting everything three months later. It, it's one of those, just interrupting all the just plans I had. Brushing everything yeah. off of the table. Yeah, yeah. all that yeah. other stuff that I was excited about, I'm still excited, but I will put that on hold for a couple months because this rocks. <sighs> Man, <laughs> I really want to play it now. I, I think I think you convinced him, Dave. I don't. Yeah, gonna, I don't think he needed to be convinced. Convinced, not really. But I'm not really I'm just another no. person pushing you closer to the cliff's edge. Peer pressure. Yeah. Peer pressure. <laughs> Man, I got all. I, I got all this Metal Gear to play. I, I ain't got time. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, speaking of the time you don't have to play games, what have you been playing yeah. lately, Shane? <laughs> Man, let me tell you about this game called Metal Gear Solid for Metal the PlayStation. Gear. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean that. Uh, so so I got I got that going for me. Um, and in so far as like, you know, in, in true Kojima fashion, I, I played it, which really means I kind of watched it for the most part, man, he really wants, he really wants to direct a movie, but anyway, <laughs> so there's that. And, uh, let's see what, what else have I been doing? Uh, not, not a lot. I got, I got a little bit more halls of torment play in both on our Sunday stream recently and 
and otherwise. But beyond that, I'm really just trying to focus on what we've got coming up for the show because we've got a few that I need to put some time into. And then then we're going to hit a little bit of a lull for for me personally, where we're going to have like a good run of like two or three games that I really don't need to like do any prep for. So that'll be nice. I might I might be able to actually play something else or maybe maybe seasoned one of Diablo four will be somewhat serviceable at that point. But I'm not (laughs) holding out hope for that. There's always Baldur's Gate three or maybe you can play three percent of Baldur's Gate three. Yeah. There you go. I could. I could do that too. Yeah. Chris is already irritated with me enough, like in terms of the show, because he's just like, uh, so uh where where are you? And I'm like, bro, I don't know. Everything's on fire. And he's like, Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. Uh so we got all these episodes to record. And I'm like, Yeah, that's that's pretty neat. That sounds like a you problem. <laughs> Uh, so I don't know. Baldur's Gate three that'd probably push me right over the edge. I'd just be like, I, I, I abdicate my position uh, on RHP. I'll, I'll give it to Randall or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, that'd be fun. Randall, stop on by. Give me a call. Don't <laughs> contingency plans. You can always talk to me though. I'm always here for you, Randall. I'm always here for you, Boo. In my situation, I've actually planned out. I'm not throwing shade i'm not i don't mean it that way shane but uh, i've been able to knock out uh, all these a lot of games for the show so i've finally been able to play some games outside of the show mm. i decided to play albert odyssey because i was thinking between uh, is it the the lost child i think it's the lost child and uh, albert odyssey and our lovely discord community recommended that i played albert odyssey which I was looking forward to do because it's a working designs game. I never got all the way through when I was younger, when I had a physical copy, which I will never be able to obtain again because that game is like $300 and I'm not spending that <laughs> on that game. And I'm glad I never did because that game, oh, it's, uh, I don't want to say it's bad. It's, it's not bad, but it's extremely mediocre. Mm. The best thing about that game is the translation, which also has some interesting little things to digest if if you've played it there are uh some big time 90s anachronisms to to say the least that many people <laughs> playing games now may may not appreciate as much as they did back then i'll just, I'll just put that there go on <laughs> um no <laughs> all right fair enough <laughs> let's just say it makes an airplane reference about a bonics where it probably should not be making oh. <laughs> a reference uh you sent me those screenshots and yes. i was just like wow that's that wow <laughs> that's all i had to yeah. say there's other things reference to a female uh, anatomy and and the cycles that it does or just how, how women take care of themselves which is very awkward for a japanese rpg no matter what kind of genre i mean it's just it's weird it's a highlight and also not at the same time. It's just like, wow, the 90s were were definitely a different time. Other than that, like the <laughs> gameplay is just I- extremely mediocre. Uh, the loading times are, are, are obnoxious. The encounter rates high. And normally I would say that this is a terrible thing and I would never want to play it again. But I'm weird and I have some sort of sick enjoyment out of it. But I'm probably never, ever going to play it again. But uh, I'm going to go into more detail. I'm probably going to try and write a, a rapid fire review because that wasn't enough of a, a barn burner right there. So if you're on our Patreon, hey, there you go. I'll, I'll give it to you, baby. And that's probably also a 90s reference. Oh, uh-huh, uh-huh, <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. 
<laughs> this podcast is pretty fly for some white guys. True. <laughs> I guess that ends what we've been talking about playing right there, Shane. I, you know what? I guess it does. I mean, what better way to end it than on a offspring reference, I guess. Yes. So uh, on that note, I mean, actually, you know what? That is sort of apropos in like a weird roundabout sort of way. If you really think about it, because I mean, like, you know, your big boss's kids and whatnot. Anyway, hey. we're talking about Metal Gear Solid. So uh, so, Chris, why don't you give the fine people at home a little bit of a little bit of history about the MGS? Indeed. few series that carry the reputation for generation after generation. Viewers still are game series where most people who play games become familiar with the developer by name. Shigeru Miyamoto has Mario, Yuji Hori has Dragon Quest, and Hideo Kojima has Metal Gear. Usually when names and series are so familiar to a wide audience, there's a good reason for it. Metal Gear didn't exactly start out this way, unlike many series that become iconic over decades. Instead, Metal Gear was a semi-popular game for the NES, which in turn was a port of a semi-popular Japanese MSX exclusive game. While Metal Gear was popular enough to receive entirely different sequels in both North America and Japan for the NES and MSX respectively, no entries in the series would be found during the 16-bit era. This didn't mean that series creator Hideo Kojima wasn't doing anything. Instead of making stealth games, he was making visual novels like Snatcher in 1988 and its various ports, as well as Police Knots, which was originally developed for the 3DO. During the development of Police Knots, Kojima would begin development on a third game in the Metal Gear series, also for the 3DO. However, following the release of Police Knots in 1995, it was becoming quite clear that the 3DO would not be the future of gaming. Kojima then decided to shift his focus to Sony's PlayStation in mid-1995 under Konami Computer Entertainment Japan, which was setting up to become a major success. Instead of calling the game Metal Gear 3, the game would be Metal Gear Solid as there was a belief that neither of the first two Metal Gear games were widely known, fitting given the series' protagonist name, Solid Snake. The game would feature fully 3D graphics, as was the standard for many big-budget games, but would use a 2D-style control scheme. The reasoning for this is that the developers were initially looking to do a first-person perspective, but found it too difficult to control given the vision of the game. In addition, a high level of dedication to providing a feeling of realism was applied. Developers would meet with SWAT teams and various other military or military-adjacent entities to get a feel for what they were going for. Kojima would also use Legos and toys to plan out environments to get a better feel for the 3D presentation. Interestingly, the team would only be 20 people, which was a preference of Kojima since he wanted to have a more intimate knowledge of where all of his team members were in terms of their well-being. The team was so small that up until late 1996, the game only had one person running code. 
The first showing of the game was at the 1996 Tokyo Game Show, with the next public showing being at E3 in 1997. Both demonstrations had a positive reception, and anticipation for the game, especially in North America, significantly increased. Metal Gear Solid would be released by Konami in Japan on September 3rd, 1998, with North America receiving it a little more than a month later on October 20th. Europe would see it early in the next year with a release date of February 22nd, 1999. The game became a massive critical and commercial success. Most gaming publications either gave the game near-perfect or wholly perfect scores, with EGM awarding the game the publication's first ever perfect score of a 40 out of 40. Reviewers would praise the game's cinematic look and presentation, which retrospectively has been largely credited in changing the way that games would edge towards movie-like presentations in the future. Most outlets and publications would award it the PlayStation Game of the Year, with it being runner-up for Game of the Year, falling short only of the much-anticipated and lauded Zelda The Ocarina of Time. Commercially, it had moved approximately 7 million units over the course of its life, including the Japanese Improved Edition Metal Gear Solid Integral. These numbers would place it as the 10th best-selling game on the PS1, in between Tomb Raider and Crash Bandicoot. Gear Solid has gone on to be considered one of the most influential games of all time, especially when it comes to cinematic presentation. It has received multiple sequels within its own namesake, with the most recent release in the main series being Metal Gear Solid 5, as well as spin-offs as Metal Gear Rising. As inferred before, Metal Gear Solid catapulted Kojima into a mainstream gaming name, who has since left Konami, fuck Konami to make games for his own development company. And that is your brief history of Metal Gear Solid. All right. Thank you, Chris, for that brief history. You know, it's it's pretty impressive, and I, I don't want to necessarily go down a, a huge rabbit hole right off the get here, but I, I do have to say that it's pretty impressive, like the amount of like detail and dedication that went into making this game. Like Kojima did not fuck around when it came to like every last detail. And we'll get into some of that, you know, in our in our different categories of discussion. But I have to say that I was I was pretty impressed learning about kind of what went into making this thing, especially with such a small team. Yeah, especially uh, for the for the PS1. Mm-hmm. Like you said, like 20 people on that team. And for an entire year, you only had one person writing the game's code. I would have hated to be that person. Uh-huh. I'm sure they, they <laughs> hate life. They probably hate Kojima at this point. He probably became president of Konami, and that's why like, they pretty much unpersoned him. It's all because of that. <laughs> that actually didn't happen. I just made that shit up. I hope he didn't believe me. You never know. I was just laughing about the, uh, the euphemism unpersoned. I'm thinking about what that actually means. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? It's all conspiracy theory run by the government. Eh, it's, it's all nano machines anyway. Yeah. It's the memes. <laughs> oh, wait, that's next one. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, but let's get in our own personal experiences about this game. We'll we'll kick it off with our guest this time, Dave. What what's been your personal experience with with Metal Gear Solid? Yeah, so 
back in 1998, I'll, I'll start. I had a PlayStation, but uh, we did not have Metal Gear Solid. Um, I remember playing Spyro and some racing game that was probably Gran Turismo, but I can't remember. And that that's all I remember playing for the PlayStation. And then the PlayStation disappeared. I don't know what happened. We probably sold it to buy a GameCube or something like that when that was the time. Uh, but we played our N64 m- way more than the PlayStation. So I did not play this back in the day. My experience with the Metal Gear series was, <laughs> I have to do it from now on, was I played <laughs> Ghost Babble on the Game Boy Color. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I remember having fun with that. I never beat it because I was a little kid and little kids don't beat games, or at least I didn't. And then I didn't play another Metal Gear until Metal Gear Rising uh, like three years ago when I played that for the first time. Um, And that kind of like catapulted more of an interest in actually playing more of the series because I fucking love Metal Gear Rising. So I Mm. played this for my podcast last year or early this year. Time doesn't mean anything uh, anymore, but I I played this for the first time within the last year, the last 12 months. So that is my history with this. I never, I still have yet to play any future games in the series beyond I played like a half hour of the DLC for Metal Gear Solid 5. I hated it, Hmm. which I have heard that I should not play the DLC first, but I played it because it's a prequel to the, the full game. Okay. Yeah. So that that's it. I I have not much experience with the series, and I did not play this when it was um contemporary. So I'm I'm once again, uh, as with a lot of retro games, coming with the perspective of someone who just played it for the first time. That's amazing. How about how about yourself, Shane? Is is this going to be a similar experience here? Did you play it for the first time, much like Dave did? Uh, I did. Ooh. Okay. As a matter of fact. So MGS has always kind of been on the peripheral for me in, in terms of video gaming. My best friend in high school, I wouldn't say he was like super into it, but I think he had played all of the MGS games that had come out by that time. So like I I was sort of like tangentially aware of, you know, its existence and kind of what it was about, but I never really dove into it very much and I think what really colored my perception of it and consequently had me sort of stay away from MGS as a whole partially was sort of like the meme culture that kind of built up around Kojima and just MGS in general of just being like, oh, LOL, they're movies, not real games and some of that stuff, which is also kind of partially true. And also a personal experience, which was so my best friend from high school and I we went to college together for the first year and we were roommates, um, which was awesome. We had a great time, but I remember he was playing. I, I want to say it was MGS four. I think I mm. could, I could have my timing off a little bit on this, but I think it was MGS four. And I remember sitting there in our dorm room and just watching him play it and kind of having that same thought where I was just like, so, so when do you play? <laughs> And he's like, I don't know, man. He's like, this, this cutscene's like 20 minutes long. I don't fucking know. <laughs> That's not a joke. <laughs> I'm like, all right, cool. Cool. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you're having fun with this. And I just never really, there was nothing about MGS that drew me in that like enticed me to want to even set foot into any of these games. And so 
when we came around to talking about this and being like, oh, we're going to talk about the first one on the show and blah, blah, blah. I was like, I was kind of dreading it a little bit because of some preconceived notions that I had. Mm. But, you know, I'm I am happy to say that uh, I think for the most part, I was I was proven wrong. Mm. I think there's a lot more going on here than I was giving it credit for with without having all of the the proper information. But, yeah, that that was kind of my personal experience. Like it was always sort of just like on the the peripheral of, of things for me. Yeah, I, I kind of want to add to my personal experience along those lines, like how I heard about it with like that that aura of people who love the series, you know, where like I would talk about the games I like and then people would be like, well, you know, Metal Gear Solid or specifically like Metal Gear Solid 3 is like one of the best games I've ever played. And I was like, okay, well, I don't haven't owned a PlayStation console, so I guess I'll never play that. That's kind of just how I felt about it. But it was always one of those like when people talk about it, like a a ray of sunshine comes down and stuff like that when, when they're talking. <laughs> it's one of those series. So I was definitely like aware that people love them. I just, you know, just didn't have the mm. consoles for it. That's true. Yeah, I, I didn't own a PlayStation ever. Any any PlayStation until like, God, I, I think I got a PS2 sometime after buying an Xbox 360. Mm. And even the 360 I bought like super late in its life cycle. So I just, yeah, I really didn't have much exposure to it. Thinking about it, I would imagine that uh, I felt about the Metal Gear series what I think people probably feel when I talk about Kingdom Hearts. That's, that makes I feel sense. Like that's, that's similar, I think. <laughs> I can't wait to have Eric on for the show for the next one of those. I, I'm going to be sitting here like stewing in a corner. <laughs> uh, All right, but what about you? Yeah, I guess I guess that brings it to me. And it does. Yes. Unlike both of you who came to it much later, I came to this game relatively soon after release. I don't know what interested me because I remember being, you know, a 13 year old, 14 year old and being somewhat bitter about EGM giving it a perfect score. I don't know why. Uh, I was one of those like, I don't know, score elitists were like, no game is perfect. It's like EGM, EGM is for, for the more mature crowd. If you want, if you want baby scores that they give everything perfect scores, you go read game pro. Everything is perfect at game pro, <laughs> but not at EGM, the real critics. And then it came up like Metal Gear Solid got the perfect score and it got it in the face of games like, you know, Final Fantasy seven didn't get a perfect score. Super Mario 64 didn't get a perfect score. So when this game, it wasn't the first time any game from EGM had ever gotten a 10. It was just the first game that got all tens across the board, which was insane. And that record was quickly broken by the Ocarina of Time, which also got a perfect 10 in the same year after that release. So interesting enough. Deserved. Sure. (laughs) The way I came to play it is I I remember going into a Best Buy and I think I, I was looking for Castlevania or I saw Castlevania. Like, I think I saw both these games at the same time. So I saw. Oh, look, there's a Castlevania game for the PlayStation. Like, this is interesting, which is Symphony of the Night. And then I looked over and here's this game that has this very clean white cover with red letters that says Metal Gear Solid Tactical Espionage Action. It's like, this looks cool. You know, as a as a as a young teenage boy, like, yeah, I like tactical espionage acting. What's a Metal Gear? <laughs> I don't know what a Metal Gear is, but this looks cool. 
And I was like, I, I want to get, I want to get into this. Look at that gruff looking white man on the cover. <laughs> he wasn't on the cover. It was just, it was a, it was a uh, white it was cover. A face. His no, face was on the cover. No. Yeah. Maybe it was it's, a different cover. It must be. And that's probably the Japanese or, or the uh, European release because in mm. North America, it was like a white background with red letters that just had Metal Gear Solid in his font. Very it's clean, very, very simple. Looks great. It looks really mm. great. And it stands out because you didn't have a lot of covers that look like that. So, of course, I got the Castlevania game and love Symphony of the Night. And that's that's a story that we've told on another episode. But then I got to Metal Gear Solid. And because it just had built up a lot in the magazines, a lot in just around gaming talk. And there was a strategy guide that was in one of my game informers that I somehow hung on to and was in good condition because that was the magazine I actually got was Game Informer. And so I started playing it and I was like, oh, this is awesome. Like there's there's all this acting and talking and like the, the characters have personality like that really just it's very outward because it was like a movie. And I mean, as much as you want to talk about text, it's it's harder to conceptualize what what characters are feeling and thinking just through text, especially like for me when I was younger, where you get that presentation like it was being a movie and everything like that. And that was a huge, huge jump for me, especially like with the gameplay. I'd never played a stealth game like that before. And I was just incredibly blown away. Like I was entirely captured by this game. Maybe it got me like on a big anti-war binge that that could have been very formative in, in politics, maybe, which I don't I don't want to get into. But it was like this whole entire. Yeah, the government's out to screw everybody. Yeah, it's it's totally evil. And we're at war with everybody and we all have nukes. And it, it was because that's the game's plot, which we're going to get into. It's a, it's a little cheesy, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But like when you're 14, you don't care. Like this is all like some sort of espionage thriller. That you're not used to seeing because back then it was like Nicktoons and and the Simpsons and shit and maybe an occasional Buffy the Vampire Slayer like they weren't getting into that. If they were like you didn't care you're just there to see Sarah Michelle Gellar kill vampires. That's all that mattered. True. So yeah this game was a big 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 thing for me. I absolutely loved it. I was head over heels in love with it. It was probably looking back at it other than Ocarina of Time it was probably the, the the game of the year for me. I just I probably liked it more than Ocarina of Time. I just didn't want to admit it because who did back then. I think that that's somewhat a little shifted. I don't know. I'm not going to talk about Ocarina of Time. Uh, we can in, in probably some, some other format. A little shifted, you say. I okay. would say so. I would say <laughs> so. But yeah, Metal Gear Solid is a big, big game for me, and I absolutely adore this one. But uh, hopefully that bias doesn't cloud my vision. It probably will. But hopefully it doesn't. I can just imagine 14-year-old Chris sitting there listening to Rage Against the Machine. He did playing MGS being indoctrinated. (laughs) Totally. It was Kojima's plan all along. Mm. I burned down a Walmart the next day. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) Down with the system. Here I am now just imagining King of Games 1998, just full throwdown. It won King of Games 1998. Okay. I didn't know you guys did did. 98. Cool. We didn't. That was when it was uh, all region free gamers. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Makes sense. Since I I've had enough of my story time. Hmm took up enough oxygen here. I think it's it's time to get into the plot and the story. Shane, Shane, do you want to do you want to take this one and, and start this off? What's what's going on in Metal Gear Solid as as a baseline here? What how does this start out? Who that's a that's a that's a broad question. Well, you know, I mean, so it, it starts innocently enough, right? You've got a group of genetically modified special forces super soldiers entitled Foxhound 
seizing control of a, an island installation. Um, What's it called? Shadow Moses. Yeah. I think that name comes back later in the series at some point. Where there is a, well, supposedly a nuclear weapons disposal facility and good old, good old solid snake gets pulled out of retirement. You know, one of those deals. So it's just like, I'm too old for this shit. And, uh, comes back to, uh, to infiltrate and neutralize such as it is. That's, that's kind of the setup anyway. Right. Did I do good? Is that, is that what it is? Yeah. Is yeah. that the, is that metal gearing? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, there's a, okay. Yeah, this terrorist organization is there and they're threatening to launch nukes if they don't get their demands, which you find out later, which is so they can get the remains of the boss character from the previous Metal Gear games, uh, Big Boss, uh, mm-hmm. appropriately named. <laughs> yeah, that's the basis of it. it. It goes some very strange and weird directions. Yeah, it, it goes places. It does. It definitely does go places for sure. <laughs> Not as weird as it would get later in the series, to be honest. This is kind of more based in a semi-reality as, as, as much as it can uh, before it goes completely off the rails later on. Let's go back over to Dave here. Dave, I've, I've kind of heard you talk about this. I don't remember your Metal Gear episode. But I do remember your Metal Gear Rising episode where you briefly talked about this, where <laughs> you said that this game, you felt this game wanted you to take it more seriously. So overall, what did you think about the, the plot story and writing here? Yeah, so the the two main takeaways for this are uh, this game has 65 plot twists in it, which is is just an incredible amount of plot twists uh, to the point where like later in the game, your world is turned upside down like every 15 minutes, basically. The other thing is uh, kind of along the lines of like wanting to take it seriously. Metal Gear Rising is different. I can't wait to hear you guys talk about that. Because that's Platinum Games and their stories are always weird as hell. Bonkers. This one kind of walks this line kind of the same way that Death Stranding did. Where I play this and I'm like, does Kojima want me to take this seriously? Or does he want me to laugh or both? Does he think that there's grand themes going on in here? Or did he just want to make a story with a bunch of cyborg ninjas and uh, stuff like that in it? And it's like this confounding like double thought that I have in my head as I'm playing through this because there are all these plot twists and there are all of these like grave stakes uh, at place and there are themes about you know the the treatment of soldiers and you know how soldiers think about themselves mostly from Snake as you know someone else wants to be like him throughout the story and he kind of like shoots that down at every chance so there's that going on and then there's also everything that me when I was 17 years old would have loved in a story. Basically, there's like spies and cyborgs and ninjas and boobs everywhere and cameras <laughs> focusing on butts as women are walking out of the room. There's fucking uh-huh. mechs and, you know, terrorist groups taking them over and stuff. It's like I was thinking to myself, like Beavis and Butthead would have loved this game. <laughs> so <laughs> There's these two things going on where it's like, I think Kojima wants me to pay attention to the themes of the story, but also there's all this other stuff and it's a really weird mix. And uh, frankly, I, I think it's cool. Like at the end of the day, when I came out of this, I was like, I'm, I'm never going to be 100% positive on everything that happens in this story, who all the main players are, all the proper nouns, basically. Mm-hmm. But I do think that for the most part, the the weird like tone of it all, misogyny excluded, is cool. 
And that's like what I take from it, along with like this series of plot twists that is just whoa, all the time in like the second half of the game. So like that, that's kind of how where I came out on this story. And uh, if you say that this is pretty tame compared to the rest of the series, Chris, then uh, I can't wait because uh, I have those in the plans <laughs> to uh, to start with Metal Gear Solid 2 here soon. Yeah, I think th- that's an excellent point because I, I felt that same sort of like weird dichotomy going through this of mm-hmm. like, OK, he's making this socio-political commentary, right? that is for the most part pretty legit mm-hmm. but then it's it's like it's juxtaposed to like just dumb shit yeah. <laughs> you know it's like that and then there's like oh but also i mean spoilers obviously but like the the engineered like virus that we implanted in you to to kill off the foxhound people is called fox die yeah. <laughs> i'm like really that's that's what you came up with huh okay Cool. Quite ingenuitive. Yeah. It's very good. Straight to the point. That's a new word. Yeah. No one's yeah. going <laughs> to implant the wrong virus on like by mistake, right? <laughs> they had to put that on the label on the on the vials just to be sure. Yeah. Like this is the one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, I'm going to be honest. I, I, I love this plot, but it does make me feel like Hideo Kojima is the patron saint of millennial Twitter posters <laughs> because they they post a lot of stuff in a very dramatic fashion and seem to think they're really saying something. Mm. And a lot of the things they say are legitimate. But at the end of the day, it's a bunch of nonsense that is very shallowly researched, mm. trying just to get admiration and likes. At the end of the day, yes, Kojima is the patron saint of millennial Twitter posters or X or whatever, or shitter, as I call it, because I (laughs) X-I-T-T-E-R. That's how I kind of see this plot. Like, there's a lot of broad strokes here. It, 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 Like I was saying earlier, like the, the, the whole entire fact that the government is just screwing Snake directly and trying to cover all this up and everyone's a bad guy just using Snake as a pawn and everyone sucks and... There's there's various shades of gray, but they're they're mostly like darker shades of gray and everyone's bad, which, again, as as Shane was kind of discussing here, it is a sociopolitical commentary that isn't too far off the mark. But the way it's delivered is just as as Dave was stating too. like, does he really want me to take this seriously when you have a cyborg ninja beating you up in front of a a nerd who just pissed himself. I I don't know. Mm. It just goes places, especially when you have a Vulcan Raven and it's just, they're talking about, you know, ear pulling Eskimo contests before they blow each other up with, with Claymore mines. It's, it's a very (laughs) strange environment to be in that at one point, I think he, he thought he was doing something very serious while at the same time, not but like you said this is something that maybe your your second or third year liberal arts college major is going to come out with and think they're writing a profound piece of art that's that's kind of what i'm getting from it and it's it's there but it's it's missing some things yeah and i guess that's the thing is i i'm just having i was having a really hard time trying to discern that whether or not like kojima thinks like if he's being self-serious, like if he thinks he's actually saying something here or if he's just very self-aware and he knows that this is kind of bullshitty, but also it's entertaining. I kind of 
I actually, you know what? I don't know. I was going to say I lean towards the latter, but I'm honestly not sure. And that may just be because I don't have a lot of exposure to the series as a whole. And maybe I would have a better idea of kind of where he stands with all of this. I don't think he knows, really. Yeah. I mean, that you know what? That could be the case, too. I, I don't know. But I mean, having said all that, at least from my perspective, I, I want to make it clear that it sounds like I'm like kind of shitting on this, but I. I actually kind of dig it. Like I, I really actually like, and I think that's part of the charm of it. Honestly, it is Dave. Yeah. I come out of it thinking like the themes that he's working with are not deep at the end of the day. This is a game that's telling you that war is bad and that the people involved are treated as disposable by the people calling the shots. And that is not yep. a very mm-hmm. deep thing to say in a story. We all know that already. Right. But the way that you get there is thoroughly entertaining and it's entertaining in a different way than like every other time I've watched a movie or played a game with these same exact themes. Right. This is the only one that has a fucking Wild West gunslinger bouncing bullets off of the walls in an Alaskan military (laughs) compound. The way that everything is presented is so unique to this that it stands out like in a really interesting way in that in that way and i will just continue to like play these games enjoy the ride and not think too hard about it because i think if you do really drill down into like deeper themes and whether kojima thinks they're deep or not they are there uh those will leave you i think a little bit less satisfied than just being like mm. well that guy's invisible and he's reading my mind and all of that stuff like oh it's a good scene though that stuff is really entertaining it is a couple takeaways here too one to go back to your point about war is bad yes there is that but there is also the aspect that kojima seems to get across that while war is bad like individual people still find some sort of primal enjoyment out of being in a war environment mm-hmm. Because as much as Snake will be like, I'm not a hero, I'm, I'm just a soldier upon on the on the front lines. Mm-hmm. It, there's there's this reflection that he has with with Gray Fox a little bit. Spoilers here, which is the, the ninja. And they explain who he is, if you don't already know. But Gray Fox's entire arc is he just wants to fight Snake to fight Snake because he that's how he gets closure. And Snake's just like, yeah, fuck it. We're going to do this. And everyone's like, you don't have to. And it's like. Nah, like this is who we are. Like this is just what we find fulfillment in because we are soldiers, and this is this is what it is. And when I, I talk to some, not everybody, but some people who come back from deployments and they get in this mindset, especially being in war zones when they come home for a long time, they're just like, "I just want to go back." Yeah. Like, but like you, you're you're risking your life. Yeah, but like I feel like I belong there. Mm-hmm. So there is some like overlap to that. There is some truth to that. Which, of course, is delivered in a very cheesy way here. But again, this is this is kind of the overall arc here. Snake is like the extreme example of that, because as far as I know from the story, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but like Snake didn't have a life outside of this. It's not like he lived for 25 years and then enlisted or something. He's basically like a manufactured soldier. So Mm. like 100 percent snake is the extreme example of that. But yeah, I agree. That's definitely a part of it. The other thing is, too, is this is the first game that really made me feel for a villain. And that villain was Sniper Wolf, because her second battle, the the scenes that unfold at the end of that actually like get 
deep for a, a video game, especially at that time. You weren't seeing narratives like that for characters in such a expounded narrative. Mm-hmm. Most villains at this time, yeah, there were complicated villains to be sure, but you were never really meant to feel sympathetic for, for many of them just because of the technical limitations, especially on a console. So being able to feel that for a character, for a villain, and actually have some, some sympathy for them, because now you're like, is this person really a bad person? And uh, certainly Otakon, your, your nerd buddy who runs around and helps you out, he doesn't think so because he's uh, infatuated with her. Those are some of the moments that this game delivers in terms of plot that are really hard hitting in between all the comical and deeper social commentary, or at least, quote, deeper that that's presented. That, those are the moments that I think really define what a Metal, Gear, a Metal Gear Solid game is. Yeah, I felt a similar sort of way with the, the conclusion of the boss fight with Psycho Mantis as well. Mm-hmm. where it was just like you, you go into it assuming you know video game black and white like this bad guy but then like i mean to be fair you were talking about the cheesy nature of, of kojima's like storytelling and you get these very protracted death scenes right where they're just like of course i i'm i'm dying but i'm also gonna you know monologue for five or ten minutes you shot me with 10 missiles. Let me talk about my death here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let me pontificate about like what made me a person like. But I mean, that aside, you know, what Psycho Mantis has to say about himself and how he came to be who he is and all that stuff. I was not expecting. And like, again, it's not like anything fucking literary necessarily. But for for a video game and to your point, Chris, especially at the time. Like that, that was, that's a cool thing. Like to be able to see the more like human side of what typically would be just sort of like, you know, a Saturday morning cartoon villain. Yeah. I think it's interesting that that you bring that up because like when I was playing this, because it has such a Western skin on it, right. Takes place in Alaska. Mm -hmm. It has American characters, a lot of them. It's helpful to remember that it is a Japanese game and it follows a lot of the same character tropes and stuff that Japanese media tends to have. So it Mm. reminded me a lot of like, you know, when you talk about two, like a character who's all they want in life is to fight another character. That's anime, baby. You know, like absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, true that it's helpful to remember. It seems weird. Like it maybe it threw me off a little bit because you have some tropes from japan but everything's dressed up like american media is basically and that makes Mm -hmm. some of these things stand out a little bit more i think than you know seeing those two characters in like i can't think of an anime because i don't watch anime but like seeing those two types of characters in like a a final fantasy or something like that you know because you expect it Mm -hmm. i would say kojima did a really good job of touching into more of the Americana kind of stuff, I would argue. Hmm. From what I also understand, this could just be a, a a false memory here. But apparently, like when they tried to localize the script, there's a lot of people at Konami that uh, when they were bringing it over, that were like, "This entire script is garbage. We're just going to rewrite it." <laughs> and apparently, Kojima got got pretty upset because it was. I don't know if it was before the Japanese release came out or not, but it was like, "This is completely nonsensical bullshit." So. We're going to fix a bunch of this and we're going to make it make sense because it doesn't. And we're just not going to let anybody know. And Kojima still like took all the credit for it, of course. (laughs) But that might explain why. Yeah, there's some very, you know, traditional Japanese themes here going on. 
alongside some very stereotypical American themes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also why it lands is because it's a blend of culture, especially for a, a generation of gamers that was raised on Japanese games. So it makes yeah. sense that, you know, an American audience, like someone like myself at 14 years old back in 1988, 1999, why they would be so enamored with the, the, the storytelling of this game and, and all aspects of it. I have, I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Before we leave the plot here, were there any characters that really stuck out to you? Because, you know, we haven't gone over all the characters. There's too many to list for, for a podcast such as ourselves. So <laughs> I, I just wanted, because the characters are such a major part of this game, were there any that stuck out for you, Shane? Ah, uh, man, that's a good question. I mean, I feel like it's a little bit of a cop-out answer, but I, I actually just really enjoyed the the ensemble cast like as a whole. Like, I think... Mm. I can't really think of a single character that I actively disliked. Like I thought they were all portrayed very well and fit kind of what I expected for the most part from a lot of the characters. But I think the personalities were developed well enough that they, they all kind of like stood on their own. So it's kind of a wishy washy answer, but I just, I don't really know if I could pick one necessarily. I just kind of liked the whole package. Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, there were a couple that stood out to me, but all these characters have these big outsized personalities. And like, I bet if you ask me a year from now, like to remember, like just name characters from Metal Gear Solid, I bet you I could remember more than the average game I play because mm-hmm. all of them have these big personalities and memorable boss fights in a lot of cases, which we'll talk about in gameplay, I suppose. But they really start you off strong with Revolver Ocelot. He is uh, very, very memorable to me. So that, that was fun. Psycho Mantis, again, there's a gameplay element that makes a lot of them memorable. It's interesting, like Snake is the main character, but Snake is probably the like most reserved and not forgettable. But you know what I mean? Like He, he doesn't have this big, boisterous personality like literally everybody else except for Meryl does, you know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the only problem I have with Snake is it's not so much, you know, David, David Hayter, who's the voice actor for Snake or the character himself. But a lot of it is a, the, the, a character will say something and then Snake will just repeat it back in the form of a question. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I was thinking about this because uh, that was brought up on my episode, too. And um, I had recently been listening to another podcast where they speak Japanese and they were talking about Japanese games and the tendency for that to happen. and that's from what I'm to understand, a feature of the Japanese language that is a way to let someone know that you're listening in Japanese is to repeat something back to them like that. So that may have just got translated over and they just had David Hayter do it too. So all the Metal Gear, all of that stuff. Metal Gear. Yeah. uh, Colonel, like that stuff. It (laughs) could just be a a function of uh, localization, less so that Snake is the world's greatest listener, you know? (laughs) <laughs> yeah yes he's got active listening down to a t yeah. but I'll, I'll i'll call this one out i'll call out liquid snake i think the performance mm. for for liquid snake was phenomenal i think he's the right dose of crazy i think he's the the way he's presented the the, the way he's sort of this kind of political i don't want to say political ideologue but an ideologue of sorts that's just just very misguided and what i find from a lot of metal gear villains metal gear solid villains is they 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 typically have some sort of aspect where it makes you pause and like hold on wait do they have a point i don't really feel that way about liquid snake 
all that much. I, I think like he's on the up and up just bonkers the entire time. He has this very Napoleon complex, like little brother syndrome the entire time, which is, uh-huh. you know, wholly on the nose because they are brothers, which is not a spoiler because it's called the twin snakes on the GameCube. So right. ta-da! <laughs> the entire time he just feels like he's this inferior version to snake. And that's that's his entire angle. That's his entire arc is why are you doing this? Because I want to fulfill father's dream because I'm better than you. And you know it. And that's that's his entire thing. It's just like, I love it because it's it's ridiculous and it's so over the top. And it, the delivery is all there. And it, it's just a full buy in of it. So Liquid Snake, him as a character, just just really appealed to me. Yeah. Revolver Ocelot's also fantastic, of course, which is why he's in like every other Metal Gear Solid game after this. Right. Liquid for reasons <laughs> is not. And I, I enjoyed the time that he was here. Uh, just, dude, just to tie that back together, the when you look at a boss and you think, do they have a point? That's what I think with everything in Kojima games that I play. I think to myself, <laughs> does yes. he have a point? And then I'm like, maybe not. Continuing on. But <laughs> the, the liquid snake thing is funny because if we're spoiling things, the, the reason he's mad is because they were clones and liquid snake got all the recessive genes and solid he believes got all of the dominant genes which is not how genetics work at all no Uh, if you got all the recessive genes that would be would be real bad for you he would not Uh, be this buff ripped dude exactly fighting on the top of a robot (laughs) at the end of the game with your shirts off. absolutely not no oiled up and playing volleyball afterwards Chomping your teeth at each other, chewing gum <laughs> intensely. I, I did want to throw one other thing in before we move on, because I was thinking more about it and I wanted to make a point of saying it because it stood out to me because this is a personal connection. But Colonel, the Colonel, Roy, Roy Campbell. Yeah. Not necessarily for the character so much as the voice actor. And I know this is kind of going into sound and stuff a little bit, but since we're talking about favorite characters and the reason for that is because the voice actor is the same one, uh, Paul Eating, who did a lot of work with the original two Diablo games, specifically the first one where he uh, played the narrator. So like when you go and read some of the, the books, the lore books that show up in the dungeon in Diablo, he's the one doing the, the really great, just like over the top reading of those, of those books. So his voice Like I would recognize that voice anywhere. And so as soon as I heard him in this game, I was just like, oh shit, I know exactly who that is. So anyway, yeah, that's, that's my personal connection for that one. There you go. Roy Campbell. I love Roy Campbell. He's a great character too. Phenomenal. Yeah. More to the performance. The character himself is a little, uh, now it's tropish, I guess he's (laughs) performance is great, but let's get into the gameplay here. We've been, we've been on the story for quite a while. And I also know the gameplay might take up some time as well. I'll, I'll start with you here, Dave. What's your take on this gameplay? Because I know you're kind of a, I don't want to say hater of retro experiences, but <laughs> you, you are very picky when it comes to what you like and you don't like. So what's, what's your take on the gameplay here? Yeah, so you're correct. I am picky. That is a nice way of putting it. <laughs> it it's interesting because as a stealth game, I don't think this is very good. It's not like stealth as the way that I like it. And I want to give this game credit because like this is a seminal stealth game 
from a long time ago now. So it may be a little bit unfair to be like, yeah, I prefer the stealth in Dishonored 2, which came out 20 years later. But the fact that this is one of those stealth games where if you get caught, you're you might as well just die and start over. Like this isn't a game where mm-hmm. you can, you know, have fun escaping or have fun fighting back or do a bunch of cool shit. It's more like you get caught. Oh, well, I'm I got the feeling that guards infinitely spawn when you get caught in this game. It might may or may not be true, but that's the feeling I got uh, because it's just like you basically just fail or you maybe you make it to a screen transition or something like that. But what I do want to shout out, and this is a big surprise, is that I fully expected this game to have dog shit boss fights, and that is not my experience. I really liked mm. most of the boss fights in this game. There are a couple that I think are dog shit, and I, I we can talk about those if you guys want to, but Absolutely. for the most part, there were like several boss fights that I was like, this is awesome, and like in a really unexpected way. Boss fights that make you use your creativity in a way that I just did not expect from this. So I want to I want to give that a big shout out. Uh, if I, you know, talk about how kind of unsatisfying the stealth was, one of the things too is like the mini map that you have is so powerful in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know how people talk about like big open world games that have mini maps and you find yourself like in Grand Theft Auto while well, you're driving in that game. So maybe not. But let's say Red Dead Redemption. Uh, you'll be mm-hmm. riding around on your horse and you're you're watching the mini map or the Witcher or something. Uh, you're watching the mini map for where to go. You're not really looking at the screen at what your character is doing because the mini map has all the information you need. That is like 1000% how I felt playing Metal Gear Solid because you yep. don't have to look at Snake at all because the vision cones, the enemy locations, everything you need to know is right on the mini map. So that's another reason why I think this is like, you know, it, it's a step for stealth games, but is it a good stealth game? I don't think so. You know? Mm. Yeah. I, I think we're actually on a pretty similar wavelength there because I was having an offline discussion with Chris about this very recently. And again, like you said, it's not a fair comparison because you're, you're putting side by side something that came much later and right. arguably was very, very much influenced by this game right but at the same time (laughs) i couldn't help but think you know like uh splinter cell basically the whole series but chaos theory in particular if i had to pick one are some of my i won't say favorite but i thoroughly enjoyed those splinter cell games and i'm not even one that typically likes that sort of stealth style gameplay but i really liked splinter cell and on some level, that's kind of what I was expecting going into this. And to your point, it's really not like at all. Um, it's it's a lot less stealth and more like just wait and then haul ass up behind a guy and like tap real quick to choke him out mm-hmm. and kind of rinse and repeat. And and there is, I think the biggest thing for me, um, not that I dislike like I don't actively dislike the gameplay in this game, but the biggest thing that bothered me about it is the like hard fail state. Yeah. Like yeah. you said, that's the thing that bothers me the most because splinter cell and other games like that don't do that. Where if you, if you screw up, it's like, okay, let me think on my feet and figure out how I'm going to salvage this situation where you kind of can do that in this game in a few instances, because like, if you notice, I mean, 
it goes from zero to like 99.99 like immediately mm-hmm. on the, on your radar if somebody notices you and if you take that guy out that number will start to tick back down so in theory you could get away and try to hide and wait wait that out until people like kind of forget you're there i guess but in practice i don't think i ever pulled that off so that could also just be a statement on my ability to to play the game maybe but yeah, it just felt like it was like a and full disclosure, I played this on an, an emulator, which introduced an interesting other problem, which we'll get huh. to when we talk about boss uh-huh. fights. But <laughs> I had the quick save like at the ready mm-hmm. because I knew that if I didn't do exactly what I was supposed to do, I might as well just quick load because the you know, it's it's over. There's no chance of like recovering from screwing it up. And that doesn't feel great. There were a few times where I got real frustrated about that, having to reload like half a dozen times. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I think I'll go a little bit further than than both of you here. I don't really think this is a stealth game at all. If to call this game a stealth game, it's I think this is a shit stealth game. Yeah, because there are games that are coming out. I, I need to look back, but like I don't I haven't played it myself. I, I need to. But Tenchu is known to be a much better stealth game than Metal Gear Solid. And we're talking Thief came out in 2000, Mm -hmm. I think. Or was that Thief 2? But like you're not that far away from the actual seminal stealth game of of all time. The one that did actually establish what it meant to be a stealth game. Yeah. And if you go back and you try to play the earlier Metal Gear games on the NES, this game is just the NES game except in 3D. If you really look, especially if you go back to Metal Gear 2 on the msx the one we didn't get but i think we got in the later collections this is essentially all of that it's just it's a 3d version of that so i don't really consider this to be a stealth game at all i consider this to be an action game that disincentivizes using your weapons because ammo is a little bit more limited than what you would get in an action game your basic pistol finding ammo isn't isn't always readily available and that's the way you can stay quiet of course once you get the suppressor but even so, like if you're in a small enough area, whether or not the pistol is suppressed or not, it, it doesn't really matter as, as long as you can take out your enemies quickly and uh, efficiently. Because for some reason, if there's no other enemies around, they don't hear you kill the enemy with a loud banging gun. Go figure. <laughs> and even later on the game, that, that stealth element goes out the window, especially on elevator scenes or stairs or something like that, where you're just running around and using your machine gun and just shooting everything in sight. So you can say it's a stealth game and it certainly has those elements and it certainly has areas where creativity is rewarded. But at the same time, like when stealth, the only times I really saw stealth being a focus of this game was earlier on and mm-hmm. in certain segments. But for the most part, this is the killing isn't penalized outside of maybe a score at the end of game. And maybe I only say that because in the later Metal Gear games, it is highly considered towards your score especially in Metal Gear Solid 4, when you can tranquilize every single enemy in the game, including bosses, which you cannot do in this game. You do actually have to use weapons against them and kill them. So, yeah, this is this is an action game that that lifts more from the NES than than anything else. That being said, I thoroughly do enjoy it once you put yourself in the action game mentality. Some things I didn't like, however, and this is just more of a limitation of back then and probably how development was, is going back and playing this with a analog controller. It doesn't have analog controls. It's you're either running at full speed or you're standing still, which considering yep. that it did advertise the fact that it had dual shock ca- compatibility at the time so heavily, 
I, I don't get why that wasn't implemented. This was not a secret in 1998. Uh, they could have done that, especially for a stealth game where running across metal tiles can alert your enemies. So that didn't that didn't make sense to me. I didn't like that. And and hiding and getting to a cardboard box, no, none of that made sense. But there there were times that yes, stealth was rewarded. It's just it's not a good one. No, and and actually, you bring up a really good point there because that was another thing that threw me off real hard for a while. It was actually part of the reason I almost just kind of put this down and was like, eh, whatever. But I I, I kind of soldiered through it, no pun intended. But hmm. the zero the, the 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 gun in sixty seconds approach to movement in this game of just like zero to full speed <laughs> is so weird because they're kind of presenting it as this like pseudo stealth thing especially in the the early levels where there's no good in between like and not, i'm not even talking about like the lack of analog movement i mean like you're given the ability to also like crouch and crawl on the ground and so you have that which is far too slow to be used like efficiently or you're running at a full tilt and there's mm-hmm. like no in between. And so it was so strange for me to get accustomed to that because instinctively I wanted to crouch into air quotes stealth mode to be able to get up behind guys without being noticed and then choke them out. But that never works. So like the only way to do it is to do this completely nonsensical thing, which is to just haul ass up behind them and then stop dead in your tracks long enough to be able to hit the button to do the choke hold because mm-hmm. if you're still holding a direction and you do that you you like do a wrestling move yeah. and like haul them over <laughs> your shoulder yeah it's for that reason like that that choke hold is so hard to pull off that i did end up playing a lot of like the parts in the regular levels as sort of like a wireframe mode just using the mini map with snake's dot and the other dots and the vision cones and that mm. is it ha- like I said before, it has all the information you need. Trying to do other stuff is either really difficult or just not really rewarding stealth wise. So right. I went to the the easiest common denominator, I guess. Yeah. Kill and, and to be fair, like once I once I kind of like wrapped my head around what the game wanted me to do with that, it actually worked fairly well. Like once I got down the the notion of basically just kind of waiting for the vision cone to go away and then just running up behind a guy and choking him, I actually got pretty good at that. But it was that initial like hump of like, oh, I'm not supposed to play this like I think I should play this, um, I think was the toughest part. And And to be fair, that might also just be a side effect of sort of like coming back to this game after having, you know, whatever, 20 some odd years of playing other games that kind of mm-hmm. built off of this. Mm-hmm. I did like the options that I did have though, in terms of using your various items, like in terms of thermal goggles or mind detectors, <laughs> night vision goggles. I think those, those were all fun in, in certain mm-hmm. situations. They did benefit you. I like the fact that you have cigarettes yeah, and you can use your cigarettes in order to find lasers, <laughs> even though it depletes your health. It's, it's charming. I do like the, the item management system as well. I like how that is implemented. In terms of like health replenishment, your rations, they're here nor there. And you can kind of soft lock yourself into not having enough rations that mm-hmm. you can die, especially if you're bad at this game, which mm-hmm. kind of sucks. The good news is that occasionally bad guys drop rations when you kill them. If you want to make sense of that, I don't know, but they will. 
and you can replenish it that way. But it's it's like totally RNG in terms of what you get, especially with ammo, because sometimes we'll drop SOCOM ammo as well. And you're going to need that to kill the baddies, because if you use anything other than a SOCOM, they're all going to rush you and endlessly spawn, as was said yeah. earlier. Mm-hmm. But overall, I I think for 1998, the, the gameplay is incredibly acceptable. And I, I had a good time once you learn once I put myself in the mentality of I'm going to avoid combat like just totally and just try to move as quickly from one area to the next as possible, which, again, at the end of the game, you get a ranking that seems to be the intent Plus the fact that you can save this game at pretty much any time, anywhere, which does really assist you in that. I'm always a fan of a generous save system. I also just really appreciate this. The again, the the attention to detail, basically like every level of this game, even down to making sure that the way in which you save the game is like sensical from like an in-universe perspective, you know, like Mm -hmm. you're actually calling up that girl i can't remember mailing off the top of my head now yeah mailing like on the on the codec and talking to her and she's like oh i can save your data and blah 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 and it's a little fourth wall breaky <laughs> kind of but i mean this game does yeah. that a lot it doesn't care but i actually really liked that like i liked the fact that a lot of that and also just to be fair like kind of dovetailing off that i don't want to go on a huge tangent but we can talk about it a little bit more in a bit but I, I was super into the whole codec thing. Like I loved the fact that they put that much detail into that, that you could just decide, like you could totally miss a ton of that voice acting and stuff if you didn't check the codec. But if you do after like, you know, a major event occurs and just fucking call up all your friends, just be like, Hey, did you see that shit? That's crazy. Like, and they'll all have something to say about it. I thought that was pretty cool too. Yeah. I missed that because I didn't, I didn't play this on original hardware with a manual and I did not look up the manual before I played it, which is a habit I'm trying to start when I play older games that were packaged with manuals. So I missed the fact that you could just press a button and have the list of all your contacts come up and then call them whenever you want. I was on here like looking on game facts, like what is Mei Lang's radio frequency, like stuff like that. So, yeah, I just I missed out on a bunch of that stuff, uh, which is a shame. Um, I want to give this game credit also for not having tank controls uh, as because we're still in the era of uh, 3D console games having tank controls and uh, tank controls fucking suck. So I'm currently playing a couple of games from a couple of years before this uh, for some reason. And uh, tank (laughs) controls are they have not aged well. So props to Metal Gear Solid for just letting you run the direction you push the stick. Yes, 100%. Is it time to get to the boss fights? Yeah, let's it do may it. Be. Let's do it. So I, I know you were you were the most anxious to bring this one mm. up or, or looking forward to it the most here, Dave. So how about you kick this one off? Where, what were you specifically looking forward to talking to here? And we'll get into it. Yeah, a couple things. This game in particular is one of the biggest games that I've played where I wished I played on original hardware. I'm not a person mm-hmm. who values playing on original hardware very much. I just don't care. I would rather play on my Steam Deck or play on my, you know, computer or something like that when I play a lot of older games. This one though has all of those things that benefit from having the CD case and having uh, you know, one of the bosses read your PlayStation memory card and stuff like that. Uh one of them where you have to pull out the controller and put it in a different port. And none of that comes through in emulation. In fact, I had to do this shitty middle ground with that one boss 
where I had to go in the emulator settings and change it to port two in the settings mm-hmm. in order for that thing mm-hmm. to work, which, uh, yep. It's just not the same, you know, <laughs> I, I want to shout out, uh, playing this game on original hardware. If you have the capability, uh, that being said, Shane was right. Save states are a big helpful tool. So, uh, I guess you got to pick your poison with the bosses though. We talked about Vulcan Raven a little bit earlier, and I, I think this is the best boss fight in the game. I had so much fun with this fight. You're in like a yes. uh, cooler with all these shipping containers. He's got like a chain gun and you, you play this like cat and mouse game with him. And I think what the game wants you to do is use those, you know, remote controlled rockets, right? Where you can like shoot it and like go through the maze and find him and, and shoot him. I ran out of rockets in that fight and uh, I used all the pickups. I kept fucking it up. So I ran out, <laughs> but what I found out was um, throughout the earlier portions of the game, you do a lot of these sections where you're crawling in minefields and you can pick up the claymores and you can use those in that boss fight. I think the game gives you a hint to use the rockets. They don't give you a hint to use the claymores. So I turned it into like a Looney Tunes thing where I would plant these mines, bait them and like <laughs> run away like a Roadrunner and Wiley e. Coyote type situation. And I just had a, a great time like puzzling out how to get through this fight when I ran out of the ammo they wanted me to use, you know? So I just want to shout that out. It's great. It's awesome. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic fight for that reason, because if you've been collecting the claymores or you've been collecting the mines or whatever the case might be, you're, you're heavily rewarded for mm-hmm. it just because it makes sense. Like everything can damage your enemies. Why not just you become the predator and they become the prey, right. which is which is a great turnabout. I love that. But speaking to the to missiles is the second fight against Sniper Wolf, which is mm. completely devious. <laughs> and it's just it's it's entirely it's it's way too easy because the game encourages you to have a sniper duel with Sniper Wolf in both of her battles. The first one, you do have to have a sniper duel, and that's that's kind of a pain in the ass. It's not a horrible boss fight, but it is a pain in the ass just because the sensitivity of the controls. It sucks. It, it does. It's not a bad boss fight, I don't think. Your mileage may vary. But the second boss fight, they expect you to use the sniper rifle again. And the, the environment's were way more open. You have less protection. So you to yourself, oh, man, like, I really got to be on my toes or else I'm going to get screwed. But you can hide in a corner mm-hmm. and just as the aforementioned Nikita missiles, which are the ones you can control, especially when you get the first person's perspective, just launch your way into... Sniper Wolf as she's at the back, standing in the little corner and never having to worry about getting hit. She's just running back and forth in the back. So you can entirely exploit this game. And they have Nikita missiles like right around that area. So the game doesn't directly tell you that you're supposed to be doing that. But it says, hey, here's an option. And I do love the fact that this game does do that, where they will give you the cheese option by providing you with the resources to cheese Mm -hmm. it without directly telling you to cheese it. I, I, I think that's great. Sometimes you just got to take a step back if you're having trouble with something and be like, oh, the game's giving me a bunch of these missiles. Why are they giving me all of these missiles? And then, yes, they're giving everything is placed for a reason, unless it's a, an RNG loot game or something like that. Right. So it's cool to puzzle that out, too. I also love the fight with the hind D because that's just awesome. Oh, man, I hated that <laughs> fight so much. I guess. you hated it. I loved it. I, I thought it was a ton of fun. I got in this. I, I 
thoroughly enjoyed it. I got in this situation in the high D fight where it couldn't hit me, but I couldn't hit it because the window to like pull it up, pull up the, the rocket launcher or whatever and shoot that was so small that I had to like put it down and run away because it was going to shoot me again. So my emulator, I went in the cheats menu and it just said, end Hind D boss fight. And I was like, check, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely one where you do have to pay attention to your radar mm-hmm. and anticipate when it's going to come up and have your missile at the ready. That's why I loved it. I, I, it's, it's a, again, a cat and mouse game that I don't know. I, I'm sorry you didn't get enjoyment out of it. I had a blast with yeah, it. I mean, uh, there's cool that you did. Yeah. Thank you. But uh, there's there are some bullshit boss fights. I think the final boss fights kind of bullshit both forms. I think it really sucks, which is unfortunate because the final boss fight is like a boss fight against Gray Fox. Like with when you have Otakon, you meet Gray Fox for the first time and he's invisible and running around there. And I actually mm-hmm. thought that boss fight was fun. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that one. I thought that was entertaining, especially with the emotion that was going into it, the performance that was behind it with Gray Fox. And then you get to the final the final boss fight, which is all fisticuffs. That's with Liquid Snake, though. The final boss. Yes. And all that fighting that you were doing earlier with Gray Fox, which was just bare knuckle brawling. It, it feels like the, the game forgot to make it good. <laughs> Because it's it's not good because sometimes you'll hit snake with one punch and it'll do a counter like he'll he'll flash and he'll do a counter. But snake will automatically go into a combo and sometimes you'll be trying to punch and you'll just get over overruled. And yeah, it's it's a pain in the ass. And it's on a timer, dude. Yeah, it's on a timer. It is on a timer, especially if you go through the cutscene. Like if you die, you get more time, by the way, mm. which makes sense of that. Uh, but if you you go through the scene because they won't shut the fuck up instead of having three minutes, you have like two minutes and 15 seconds, which you can do. And you can't just have them run out of health either. You have to knock them off a ledge in order to complete the fight. That's, not, that's technically not the final final boss. I also hate the final scene where you're driving around in a fucking mm-hmm. Jeep and you have to if you don't go into first person perspective to shoot the enemies, you're, you're really fucked. Mm-hmm. And the game doesn't tell you that that that's also bullshit. But there I know that I'm just saying like a lot of bullshit here and there is. But the boss fights that are good just overrule it. And there's more good than bad here. I feel a lot more good. Yep. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. And you mentioned the the fight with Gray Fox. I, I actually really liked that one. Yes. It makes you think a little outside the box, which is not the only one. I mean, several of these boss fights are very creative in, in those sorts of ways. But I just really appreciated what it did. Where it's like you're so used to already, even in a, you know, somewhat early on in the game, you're already used to just being like, oh, no, I'm just going to machine gun the shit out of everything. And it's very clearly just like, yo, stop being a pussy and fight me. Uh And then (laughs) you finally figure it out and you're like, oh, okay, I got to, you know, fight this guy hand to hand. And before even before that clicked for me, the first thing I thought of was also, oh, this guy's a cyborg ninja. We've got these, uh, the hell are they called? Chuff grenades or something Chaff like grenades. that? Chaff grenades, yeah. Chaff. Chuff grenades is a whole other thing. <laughs> a chungus. But yeah, yeah maybe. the chaff grenades, I was like, oh, I've got these. And so throwing those will stun him and stuff. And the thing about that is that like, I, I'm, maybe I'm easily amused, but like I, I actually felt like a measure of like accomplishment from thinking that through. Which I think is great that like the game sort of fosters that, you know, it gives you just enough without, 
you know, overtly just being like, do this, that, you know, if you really stop and think for a moment, you know, you'll be rewarded for really just using your brain instead of just, you know, passively trying to blast away at everything. And so I, I really enjoyed that fight in particular. I mean, everybody is going to talk about the Psycho Mantis fight, right? Oh, of course. That's yeah. kind of the thing. We have so to I, talk about it. So I feel like we should probably talk about that. But I'm also kind of glad that we're getting to that one more or less last. Yeah. Because I think that tends to overshadow a lot of the other really great encounters mm-hmm. just because that one is just so like out there. Yeah. And I know like it's going to be lost on a lot of people today. It doesn't sound like it's been completely lost, but that boss fight back in 98, 99, when I first played that boss fight, that was insane. <laughs> the amount of detail that's in that fight is more the pre fight, like the actual fight. Like once you get down to brass tacks, it's, it's not that spectacular once you know what you're supposed to do, which Dave already inf- inferred earlier. But like the pre-fight where he's reading all your information on your memory card and like no one really understood memory cards back then. They were just things that you saved your device on. They didn't, like especially when you were a younger kid, you didn't know like a game could read everything that was going on with you. So it's talking about how many times you saved or how many times you've died mm-hmm. or it's like. Oh, so you like Castlevania. <laughs> oh, so you like Azure Dreams. And like, why are you going to bully me like everybody else? It's just <laughs> when these things are, are talked to you in a video game, especially when he starts making your controller vibrate. It's just like, damn, man, like this is crazy. This is amazing. And then when you have to swap your controller ports and to actually get past him, it it's like one of those totally fourth wall breaking boss fights. That's that's incredibly is incredibly ingenuitive and one of those things in gaming that especially if you were there like one of those like we all say if you were there but if you were there that it was something you will never ever forget because it's a a phenomenal moment in video game history 100 percent. yeah and i'll be honest like even in the year 2023 for a moment that little trick that he pulls where it looks like your video signal went out Mm-hmm. That still got me actually for a moment, <laughs> especially playing on, I, I guess just because I was on an emulator or something, I don't know, but like I was sitting there and like the screen just goes black. And before I realized that it says Hideo instead of video, mm-hmm. I was just like, what the, what the hell just happened? Did my emulator break? And I was like, oh, wait a minute. So that shit still works, man. Also, speaking of detail, I, and I don't know, I'm sure maybe both of you already know this, but I, again, even now i was still thoroughly impressed by this again the the amount of detail and i keep harping on that but i I think it deserves it because Mm -hmm. there's just so much here but in that fight during the fight if you try to go into first person perspective you are looking through psycho mantis's point of view and not yours yep and you're looking through meryl's point of view prior to that fight too Mm. Mm. yeah it's so good yeah, it's crazy. I was I was very impressed by that. What did you think, Dave? Yeah, I was so I was playing on the emulator. I was using save states because again, I didn't know how to call Mei Ling to save. <laughs> he actually said something to the effect of, Ooh, you don't save your game very often. You must like to live dangerously. And I was like, Yes, I do like to live dangerously. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the reason. Yeah, uh, that that's definitely it. But I was thinking like, cause they're, they're remaking these or they're porting them to uh current gen stuff and PC and stuff. So I'm like, 
mm-hmm. Psycho Mantis going to go in my Steam library and pull out like some uh, some waifu <laughs> game that I picked up for a dollar? You like to play Waifu Discovered too? <laughs> like, ah, I see you like the anime titties. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but it, it's a it, even without the extra stuff, without reading my memory card, without reading how many times I saved. This was still one of those things where like I could put myself in the position of someone playing this on the PlayStation in 1998 and be like, yeah, this I can, this is obviously very cool. This would have been awesome, uh, which is a position that I don't often connect with. You know, it's someone who like you guys can correct me if I'm wrong is you, you guys do the retro games podcast. I, I play games from 2015 onwards on my show for the most part. Right. But you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. Were people doing meta stuff like this before this? Like someone not like meta to the effect of like, we're going to like have the player think about their role in a video game like the, you know, the the fair in Chrono Trigger where they're keeping track of what you're doing. Like this is mm-hmm. taking advantage of the, the actual hardware and the controller that you're holding and stuff like that. I, I've never seen something before this taking it to that level, you know? I... I haven't. I mean, the most I would see is just they would take your save data from a previous game and do some funky shit with right. it in the next game. Like you yeah. see with Sui Coden and being able to play with uh, the character from that and his and his, and Grubio in Sui Coden too. That's something you would see. Mm-hmm. But in terms of reading data, I'm not saying it had it wasn't done or it, it had not been attempted or anything like that to any great success, but. This was really the first notable moment, at least for mainstream gaming, where you saw something like that happen. Yeah, I had a feeling. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't think of anything prior to this that that took it to the same level that this game does. Yeah, and of course, I, I, I would love to play Kojima's other games because who knows what he was doing there? Maybe he did it. There. There's that game Boktai that uses a sun sensor to like charge up your your health or your power or something like that. Right. It's a Game Boy game always thinking about cool stuff and so like part of me is like yeah this this is uh he he toes the line between being corny and cool like constantly stepping <laughs> over on both sides of yeah. that line right but this is cool uh easy to see the the closest one i think would be x-men for the sega genesis if you're aware mm, of that I'm not, no where so you get to the end of the game and it says if you in order to progress you have to reset the system okay and a soft reset so you have to press the reset button if you turn the system on and off it screws it up and you can't do it. You couldn't do it on a lot of emulators for a very long time. And I think that's the closest one because the the game is like you have to reset it or else the virus will take oh, over okay. or some shit. So I guess that's mm. the closest mm-hmm. that I can think of uh, just off the top of my head. Yeah, it's good stuff. But phenomenal fight. Very big milestone. Big milestone in terms of gaming, I think, mm-hmm. in terms of boss fights and how it brings people in, makes makes them immersed immersion. But we've been here a while as well with the gameplay. Yeah, just just packing it all in here. This could be as long as the Tales from the Backlog episode. Maybe we're getting there. <laughs> we're getting there. But let's let's get into the graphics. We didn't forget it this time, Shane. I think I'll keep I this mean, one off. I think yeah. things went totally fine last time. You know, maybe we just cut this category completely. <laughs> Nobody cares what video games look like. Yeah, who cares? No one. No one cares. <laughs> who cares about graphics? They're they're irrelevant. But uh, I'll say this: like the graphics of this game. If you like PS1 graphics, which is an aesthetic that is coming back, mm-hmm. it is, uh, in, in, especially amongst indie developers, like that's that's one of the trends that's starting to work its way in. This game is a game you'll hold up as something that is is extremely tolerable 
And as previous guest on the show, uh, Keith Gasper said when he was talking about uh, Die Hard Arcade, there's something about it that feels like a warm blanket. Mm. Like, no, it's not going to have the detail that you have today. Of course, it doesn't. It's not going to look as good. This is a PlayStation one game. But for a PlayStation one game, it looks really damn good. The attention to detail, which is something that Shane has brought up, is amazing, especially when you go into some of these rooms and like you can make out all the references it has, like all the police knots uh, posters, Mm -hmm. the totally not a Saturn PlayStation that's on the desk in that room, (laughs) which is totally a Sega Saturn. The environmental details are are off the charts for a game of this era. They still look fine. I played this on a PlayStation 3 via the, the, the PS1 Classics collection. And so it's not it's kind of unoriginal hardware. We're not. But everything here just it still looks like really fucking good for a PS1 game. And I was I was blown away about how well this is actually held up because I didn't think it was going to hold up this well. But it has. I mean, but and the, the color selection has a lot to do with that, too. But I'll shut up and kick this over to Shane here. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, I would tend to agree. I mean, I've never been the biggest fan of of this era of graphics, even as someone who had an N64 as a pretty integral part of my video gaming life growing up. They're generally pretty hard to go back to a lot of the time. But I think even though I would say that, you know, this, this game does still suffer a little bit for that in that it's that early polygonal sort of era, but in within that sort of like pantheon of games, this one is definitely one of the better ones. Like there wasn't really any point playing through where I, there was like a real egregious, like, Oh, this looks like mud (laughs) or something like that. I think the texture work was really well done, especially for the time. Uh, You definitely get that, you know, real weird, janky PS1, like jittery texture stuff, especially when the camera's moving and things like that. But no, overall, I, I, I actually really liked the presentation of the game. They still managed to get a lot of personality out of the character models, even though their faces were kind of like a bleary mirror a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Also, I just think it's absolutely wild that they're design inspiration for solid snake himself was like what was it like the what did they say it was like the body of some jacked guy that i can't remember off the top of my head now and the face of christopher walken (laughs) and i'm like awesome all right yeah let's do that (laughs) oh jean-claude van damme that's who it was oh nice the body of of jean-claude van damme and the face of christopher walken everyone was jean-claude van damme in video games back then Mm. yeah he was a ripped dude also, I think coked out as fuck. I was I, most likely. Yeah. I was about to say also so much cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think of the graphics, Dave? Yeah, you, you guys pretty much covered what I think like for a PS1 game, you know, early 3D era in video games. Um, I, I think this game looks pretty good uh, considering when it came out. You know, there are certainly PS1 games, high profile PS1 games that look a lot worse than Metal Gear Solid. I think it looks pretty good. The faces are weird as fuck. Like, I don't think Snake opens his eyes for the entire game. No, he has eyes. There's also the scene where Snake is getting tortured and his arms are not connected to his torso. So that (laughs) that made me laugh. But you'll have that, I suppose. The thing that stuck out to me the most was the presentation of it and like the cinematic quality to the way that they're presenting it, the way, especially with cutscenes. This was, again, 
I am not an authority on this era of video games. Talk to me about N64 stuff, maybe, but PlayStation, no. But this feels like the most cinematic looking game that I'd played up until this point in time, you know? So that stuck out to me a lot and was obviously super influential because cinematic AAA video games are still all the rage. Yeah. Yeah. And and speaking of that more sort of cinematic approach, one of the other things that stood out to me that is pretty hard to pull off. And I think they did it. I won't say flawlessly, but they did it very well. In this, And that is, and this sort of meshes the presentation and the gameplay a little bit, but we, we didn't really touch on this, but if you, you know, get solid snake up against a wall, he'll sort of like automatically like flip and put his back to the wall, you know, to kind of like press up against mm-hmm. it. And when he does that in almost every instance, the camera will also like swing in and give you like a view of what's like behind him. And it does that in a very cinematic fashion in almost all of those cases. And you get, you actually get some really cool looking angles with that too. Mm-hmm. It's, it's great. Like screenshot fodder. You reminded me that oh, I yeah. played this entire game, not knowing that you could press a button to go into first person view. Uh, except <laughs> I thought you could only do it with the sniper rifle. Cause that's the only time the uh, game outright tells you. Cause again, I forgot to check the manual cause I'm a, I'm a baby new gamer. So <laughs> I played the entire game. This is how I got the lay of the land when I was uh, working through these levels because the top-down perspective doesn't give you enough information because the camera just doesn't extend out far enough to see where everyone is. So I would use Mm -hmm. this, like back up against a shipping container, see, okay, that's what's over on this side of the level. Now I'll do it from a different perspective, see what's over there, and then I can go about following the mini map but it is really cool still cool i can't imagine how you got through that section where you had to blow up the portions of wall that looked different like how did you do that without looking in first person i checked a guide yeah ah, <laughs> gotcha. okay fair enough I'm, I'm more curious how you controlled your nikita missiles that must have been painful oh god yeah did you do that from a top down yeah i did that was fine no that was i tried doing that actually before i I realized that you could go into first person with the missiles Hmm. that was almost possible to control Uh, i mean they're still real finicky even in first person that might be why i ran out of nikita missiles during the vulcan raven fight (laughs) now i come to think of it might be (laughs) yeah yes Mm -hmm. but you know what also adds to a lot of this presentation that we've been talking about is is the sound design which i thought was phenomenal uh, Dave, you haven't started a section off here in a while. How about how about you kick this one off? The music slaps. We'll just throw that out yes. there. Love the music. Yeah. And uh, this has again, I'm not an authority, but this feels like it had the best voice acting for any game I'd ever played up until 1998. I think that's fair. I yeah, that's, I'm trying to think, but I think that's a pretty it, fair it, assessment. It's yeah. like uh, you know, you play Nintendo aside because Nintendo has never cared about voice acting. They still don't. But when I think about other high profile like PlayStation games I'd played like the the original Resident Evil or, you know, even into PS2 games or uh, Final Fantasy X that I'm playing right now, a PS2 game. Some of those voices, not Final Fantasy X, that's not fair. Some of the voices in like Resident Evil and the original Silent Hill 2, 
feel like they just grabbed people from the office and they were like, Hey, we need a, we need an NPC come record 10 lines of dialogue. Didn't get that <laughs> feeling from metal gear solid at all. This is the, the first game in the chronology that I played where I was like, these, everyone sounds like a professional and they, they killed it. Yeah. I, I would tend to agree. I think, I mean, to be fair, I don't think this has anything to do with the voice actors themselves, but I will say that I think the delivery of some of the lines was hampered a bit by the script that they were given mm. because there are definitely some super ham fisted lines that get like shunted into the dialogue that I'm just like, you did what you could with that one, but <laughs> yikes. Again, professionals. Yeah. 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 For sure. And all of the, uh, all the metal gear, all of that metal gear. <laughs> David, David Hader is solid snake. I know that Kojima does not like David Hader. I don't care. He is Solid Snake. It's not Kiefer Sutherland. Go fuck yourself, Kiefer Sutherland. I don't know if you, <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland, so I might like you, but go fuck yourself in the meantime. <laughs> the way that it's presented, yeah, the voice acting, this is what makes this game so cinematic. It's not like voice acting was foreign to games prior to this. There was plenty of games with voice acting on both the Sega CD and TurboGrafx CD. Uh, even the PlayStation Sega Saturn leading up to this, voice acting was not something that was foreign, especially in anime games. But the thing with anime games is they're trying to be anime. This is not an anime game as much as it borrows from anime, as much as you can tell that Kojima loves anime. This is him trying to like incorporate a movie into a video game. This is truly the cinematic experience. And you could tell like this is something that a lot of developers were trying to do that wasn't quite perfected yet. Final Fantasy VII, they made that its entire goal to be the cinematic RPG. And then they Squaresoft would come right back and try and do it again in the same year that Metal Gear Solid was released with Parasite Eve. That was advertised as the cinematic RPG. But the game that actually nailed down what a game should be, at least towards the mainstream and to great success, because I'm sure plenty of PC games are trying and and doing their own attempts at this because they had the better technology and you know a better implementation of the CD-ROM and everything like that for a little bit longer. This game just absolutely nailed it. And that's because the, the music was atmospheric. It wasn't just catchy chip tunes going on in the background for each section. Even though each section has its own identity and flavor, it all kind of blends in together. Even when you get detected, all that music is very, very iconic. When you hear the, those tunes going on, uh, every single song that plays during these elaborated death sequences just matches up perfectly as well as the emotion and kind of death rattles that all the characters have while they're perishing, even though that might be going on for 30 minutes. It still <laughs> hits every single note to be corny here. The entire sound design, when it even comes down to the weapons, they, they nailed those walking around, running on the platforms, the sound that snakes makes, the sound that your enemies makes uh, and how they talk. It's I, I, I for 1998. It's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. It, it doesn't miss anything. I'm not going to say today is perfect, but for then, absolutely. Yeah, I also just, uh, it's sort of tangentially related, but it reminded me of it again, going back to that Psycho Mantis encounter, but even like leading up to it, they build that thing up to where that encounter really did take advantage of just about every aspect of the game, including the soundtrack, because they make a point of saying like, before i think it's like the hallway or something leading up to where you actually get to where he's at it suddenly becomes silent it becomes quiet and solid makes a comment about that of like where'd the music go or something like that and then you yeah. realize 
because they talk about it shortly after that, that Psychomantis is using that music is what is facilitating like part of his like mind control ability. And that's just such a cool way to like tie that in. I also want to give the sound design credit for creating a sound effect that has transcended video games. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows the sound of alerting a guard from Metal Gear Solid. It is everywhere now. Uh, My wife watches a lot of uh, Korean variety shows and they use that sound effect about 30 times every episode. So it is (laughs) it is much, much bigger than Metal Gear Solid or even video games at this point. And uh, it's got to be got to be pointed out. Whoever created that sound effect, it's perfect. Yeah, I I hope they're getting royalties for that. (laughs) Probably not. It's Konami. They don't (laughs) fucking care about that. Certainly not. No. (laughs) Yeah. Well, especially considering the original North American release, uh, pretty much all of the English voice cast wasn't even properly credited. They had they were under pseudonyms. Allegedly, because of the time, the Screen Actors Guild rules were like unclear on how to credit people for video game voice performances. Mm. So take that however you will. But I don't know if this this was also a cause, so don't take this for what it's worth. But Konami notoriously wanted their developers and people with under their umbrella to use pseudonyms. So other companies that were impressed by their games would not headhunt the people within the company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they would say like you're not getting credit at all. That's why if you go back to the original Castlevania, a lot of people don't know exactly who's on that team is because Konami wouldn't let them take credit. So this is this is something just Konami did. Once again, fuck Konami. They are the worst because Konami is the worst or however that goes. Yeah, fuck that. This leads into our Patreon pontifications mm. as we're getting close to wrapping up the episode here. If you want to have a pontification read here on the show, as I have said, it's a simple three step process where one, you join our Patreon for as little as one dollar per month. You can do that if you look up our link tree, which will be at the end of the episode. So stay till the end to hear that. Uh, Number two, join our discord. And number three, just post your comment about an upcoming episode in the Patreon pontifications channel and you will have it read here. Easy day. This one starts out with Randall. So I I guess I have to take this one because he's getting very creative with his uh, alliteration, which I think is meant for me. I'm I'm assuming it's for me. So here's what Randall has to say about Metal Gear Solid. Metal Gear Solid's mastermind, Kojima, crafts a compelling and cunning concoction, captivating gamers with his creative and cinematic storytelling. Thank you, Randall. All right, next up we have Metal Gear Ray Ray, and he says, Metal Gear Solid was a game changer in many ways. The huge amount of dialogue and cinematics helped make video games into an experience, honestly, for better or worse. It had an iconic character in Solid Snake. It made the stealth genre commonplace. And it was a very creative game in general. The Psycho Mantis fight comes to mind. It's still a favorite of mine to this day, and when making a list of groundbreaking games, this should be mentioned, along with the Marios, the Grand Theft Autos, and the Street Fighters. Also, they have Deep Throat. Indeed they do. (laughs) And by the way, uh, Ray Ray, I know you didn't call yourself Metal Gear Ray Ray, but it does tie into the Metal Gear Solid series, and I think that would be appreciated. Right. Next is Ozzy and Ozzy, who is the host of our retro hangover review crew. He drives that. Thank you so much, Ozzy. And you can be part of that, too, if you join Discord. Plug, plug, plug. He says Metal Gear. Oh, sorry. Metal Gear Solid was a paradigm shift in what games could be. 
Its fusion of gameplay, narrative, and presentation give us an insight into the future and was a high that none of its sequels could truly match. I tend to agree with that, actually. Next up, we have Thunderdome Gaming Society says, I still have my original copy with the pre-order bonus. That's, That's pretty cool. The notebook is pretty snazzy as the front and back is metal. Damn, this game brings back so many good memories. Playing through it for the first time is an experience. It's so damn fun. You want to play through it again. ASAP. Until, well, I wouldn't say that because that last, that last part is painful. You're driving. (laughs) Anyway, I already talked about that. Next is JC. To say Metal Gear Solid got a lot of things right. It's a gross understatement. It broke the fourth wall, introduced new gaming mechanics, and showcased that games could indeed be quite cinematic, along the way reinforcing the Sony PlayStation was the console to get that generation. But don't take my word for it. Ask anyone that experienced this masterpiece what their thoughts are, and watch the delight and excitement in their eyes. Well said. Next up, we have editor extraordinaire Ashton says Metal Gear Solid was an early title to broaden my horizon when it came to video games. Throughout the 90s, playing SNES games and transitioning into the PS1, I mostly stuck to RPGs, platformers, Zelda games, etc. Anything shooter or a game that had a real-world kind of setting with only humans to play never really appealed to me. One time we were at the mall in, I think, EB Games, spending Christmas money or something and couldn't decide what new PlayStation game to buy. On the recommendation of my older brother, we purchased MGS. He remembered playing the original on NES and thought it would be fun. I had my reservations, but I guess we were ultimately convinced. I'm glad that we were because we played it a lot and, much to my surprise, really enjoyed it. MGS showed me that any genre of game is fun, with solid gameplay and great storytelling. The things that stand out in my memory are hiding in the box, the codex sound, trying to beat Sniper Wolf before we knew about the diazepam, and of course, the whole Psycho Mantis battle. I have a vivid memory of them saying, So, I see you like Azure Dreams. Keith from the Main Quest podcast says this, and this is quite a bit abridged because it has photographic evidence because this isn't a discord. He says, I was at my parents today and found boxes of my original games, and I still have my day one copy of MGS. That game was shocking back then. Groundbreaking. All right. And last but certainly not least, Josh Koval of the Still Loading podcast says, I played Metal Gear Solid for the first time six-ish years ago. I was really surprised with how well it held up despite its age. However, that final boss is the worst. I don't think a game has made me as mad. (laughs) That stupid hand-to-hand combat was garbage. But overall, a super fun game, despite that. On a semi-unrelated note, I also got the manual for my game signed by the voice actor of Psycho Mantis. That's pretty cool. Speaking of making people mad, I'm about to make Shane more mad because I didn't load this properly. And we have two more that we need to go through here. Great. So, yeah. The next one is our good friend Adam from The Good, Bad, and the Backlog. And he says, Metal Gear Solid. No, sorry. Once again, I have to make sure I say this right all the time. Metal Gear Solid was a good game that birthed an even better game because Metal Gear Solid 2 is the tits and Raiden is way cooler than Snake. Also, Vulcan Raven can spray me with his bullets any day. (laughs) 
Ah, uh, it's that, that Zangief thing coming back again. <laughs> mm. All right. And uh, I guess actually last, but certainly still not least, we have Nomad who says, While Metal Gear Solid set the bar at the time for storytelling, sound design, and overall presentation, I'll never forget playing the game through with my stepdad. We were in awe of the voice acting, the batshit crazy story, and that fight with Psycho Mantis. Plus, I'll never forget us not understanding that Meryl's codec frequency was on the game case, a thing in real life. Such a great experience. And actually, on that note real quick, I just wanted to point out that I too was very confused by that Mm -hmm. for a little bit because they give you a CD case in game right before that happens. And I'm like, how do I inspect this thing? (laughs) And I was sitting there for like a good 10 or 15 minutes trying to figure that out. And then I had to go and Google it. And it was like, it's on the actual game case. Like, ah, right. That thing I don't have. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, There's pictures all over the place. Should be fine. So I guess this brings us to the very end of the episode where we talk about whether or not we believe this game holds up today. Thank you, patrons, for providing your pontifications. But now it's our turn to provide our opinions. Myself and Shane are going to go first. And as is tradition, our guest will have the final word before we officially close up shop. So, Shane. Yes. How about you let the people know whether or not you think this game holds up today? I will attempt to uh to be brief but i've never been known to be particularly good at that Hmm. but i will say just yes yes i i actually i think it absolutely still holds up today it's one of the few games and i'm kind of i think i'm stealing this a little bit from dave but it's one of the few games where i would highly recommend finding a physical copy and playing it on the original hardware and i almost never say that But because of what it does and how it sort of ingeniously leverages that specific hardware, you're going to have a lesser experience, I think, if you play it any other way like I did. But having said that, even with, you know, some of those limitations of of playing, you know, an emulated version of the game, a lot of my sort of gripes with it really come down to my personal like experience and me bringing some of that, you know, like I said, 20, 30 some odd years of other stealth games and other action game baggage along with me with some, you know, preconceived notions of how I thought I should play this game. But once I kind of got through that and really figured out what I was meant to do, this game is, is thoroughly enjoyable. Like even with some of the, you know, detractors that we spoke about regarding the the gameplay itself as far as like the stealth not being like really stealthy but there's just so much going on in this that i now i understand why people like the metal gear series as much as they do because and granted even though there were two technically before this i'm really just counting this as sort of the beginning of what we consider to be metal gear these days and to come out the gate with this is pretty impressive. And so I a hundred percent get it now, like why people are so into this. And, and honestly, like it's kind of opened up a new thing for me because now I'm, I'm genuinely interested in, in playing the, you know, the, the follow-ups to this. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's an easy recommend for me. 
At the beginning of this episode, I said that I wasn't going to let my bias get in the way of making this, this statement here at the end, and I lied, because <laughs> I'm just going to start out with some, some very simple math here. Our last mainstream episode for Potful Mail, which is, has, has a cult following and people do love who've played it. They talk about it a lot, especially Sega CD fans and, and working design fans. We got one response from one person, which was Randall, who I think just wanted me to say in alliteration. I think that was the extent of what was going on with Potful Mail. This week, a quarter of our patrons wanted to say something about Metal Gear Solid. I'm pretty sure that that Dave would, too, uh, had he not been on this episode. He had an entire episode mm-hmm. to say something about Metal Gear Solid. So when I, I look at how monumental this game was, how much of an impact this game had on the video game industry and how much it, it impacted and affected people since this release in, in 1998. It's it's extraordinary. Now, that's not the question. The question is whether or not this game holds up today. And again, my bias is going to go into extreme overdrive here because this is one of my favorite games of all, all time. This is one of the most formative games in in my life, in my gaming experience, and has defined a lot of the way I appreciate games, how I ingest games, and how I view storytelling in games. Also, as Ray Ray said, for for better or for worse, this is an incredible experience. I understand it has problems that are a bit of an anachronism when it comes to gameplay today. But when I I take that consideration, in 1998, this game was perfect. And today, aside from those anachronisms, this game, in my opinion, is is still perfect, even though there was times I was getting frustrated. It might not be the 10 out of 10, uh, if I'm being entirely objective, uh, that I that I viewed it at back then. But this is this is still up there it's it's something that makes me extraordinarily happy it does give me that smile of delight it does you know hit me heavily heavily with nostalgia and just being able to run through it knowing what to do knowing how to control snake and knowing how to get through the environments like so many of us do with games that are familiar to us even though i haven't played this game as often as a lot of those games that i'm intimately familiar with it's and experiencing that story and still tearing up for stupid reasons, because I'm a big softie and I, I cry at stupid stuff. This is a game that I, I continue to love and I think it does hold up and I think everybody should play this game. Uh, don't go into it, as we've already discussed, thinking that this is a true stealth game. It is not. <laughs> go into this thinking this is an action game with with stealth elements. And I think that you'll have a different way of viewing it. But yeah, I, I love this game. It holds up still still as perfect as it can be. So Dave. Close us out and let us know what you think with the final word here. Okay, so yes, Metal Gear Solid holds <laughs> up. I have more to say, but yes, I didn't <laughs> want to bury the lead. But it's interesting. It's been mentioned before. I, I'm someone who's very picky when it comes to going back and playing retro games where especially gameplay is outdated. Metal Gear Solid 1 gameplay is outdated. Games do not play like this anymore. So often when I think about retro games that hold up, it's it's like, okay, maybe the gameplay is not great, but it has a really cool story. Or uh, maybe like the story is whatever, but the gameplay is still really fun. Or maybe there's no story and the gameplay is still really fun. Metal Gear Solid's in like a category on its own. What we talked about before I don't really know what to make of the story. It's it's just twisting my mind around with like, how should I feel about the story of Metal Gear Solid? In the end, it's kind of like a fun 
a theme park ride with a bunch of memorable characters and some fun boss fights and stuff. The reason that it holds up, I think, is because I think if I want to try and put myself in the shoes of someone in 1998, the stuff that would have been cool then, like the cinematic presentation, the characters, the voice acting, the twists and turns along the story, uh, some of the cool boss fights and stuff, and some of those things like the Psychomantis fight that so many people brought up, that if you just hear people talk about it, you're like, so what? He reads your memory card. What? It's, it's a gimmick. And I'm like, it kind of is, but it's undeniably cool to think about what it would have been like to experience back then. So I think all of that stuff holds up. I don't think the gameplay is very good outside of some boss fights, but those boss fights are really fun and gave me enough gameplay enjoyment to not like put on the invincibility cheat on the emulator I was playing in just to move from space to space and, and, you know, see what the next cutscene is going to hold because you have no idea if you haven't played what the next cutscene has in store for you in this game. So yeah, I, I do think this game holds up and I do think that it deserves its place in like, it deserves the, the celebration that people have for it. I think. This game is held up on a pedestal. It's it's in, you know, a lot of people's personal like favorite games and pantheons and stuff if you want to think about it that way. And I think it deserves its spot. It's not there for me personally, but I do like I did enjoy playing it. And I it, it's not one where I have to reach very far at all to see why someone would be like this is my favorite game ever. I'm like, I get it. I totally get it. So, yeah, it holds up and it's one like on my show, we do recommendations at the end for like, what kind of person would you recommend this to? And for Metal Gear Solid, it's like, if you like video games and you haven't played Metal Gear Solid, try it. Like it's cool. It does a lot of cool stuff. It's certainly not going to be a game that you're not going to have any opinion on whatsoever. You'll never meet someone who's like, I played Metal Gear Solid. I don't remember anything from it. It's just not possible. Right. (laughs) So easy. Uh, recommendation for people for people to check out because it holds up in in a lot of different ways well there you have it i you know what i, I that was not surprising i didn't think that there was going to be any sort of dissent amongst the three of us probably would have been me if anybody but <laughs> also pretty good timing and for the record we did not do this on purpose uh or at least i didn't that i'm aware of i don't know maybe chris snuck this one in here without me knowing it but mm. the 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 metal gear like collection is is coming to like steam and modern platforms here soon Mm -hmm. that will include i think it's like what like the first five metal gear games or something like that first three it's the first first three three. yeah okay i thought it was more than that but at any rate another uh opportunity to to check this game out we won't touch on it now but there's you know there's also the the twin snakes remake i don't know how people feel about that one it did some things mixed yeah but uh, at any rate, that does bring us to a close for this episode. So uh, as usual, we first want to thank our most esteemed guest. So uh, Dave, thank you for joining us once again. Yeah, thank you guys for uh, the invite back and uh, can't wait till the next time. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, man. And until that next time, if uh, people want to check out all that you do out there on the net, uh, where can they find you? Yeah, so... I have a video game podcast called Tales from the Backlog. It is Backlog Game Reviews. 
Even if I cover a new game on the show, by the time you hear it, it will be in backlog territory. So it is going through my own personal backlog of games with the occasional new game. Uh, One thing I want people to know about my show is that every episode is spoiler-free for quite a while. So if you haven't played a game like Metal Gear Solid, but (laughs) games that are real story-heavy, like uh, let's say Disco Elysium, or games that do really interesting gameplay things like Tunic or Spec Ops The Line with your host, Chris Copeline. Hi. That is like one of the key things I want people to know about my show is that you can listen for a while. We will go to painstaking effort to not spoil things for you. And then we'll say, okay, spoilers are starting now. Get out if you don't want to be spoiled every single episode, except for like F-Zero X, which uh, games that don't have stories, you know. So that's my <laughs> show. Uh, like I said, Chris has been a guest on there before. Uh, you will hear from both of the Retro Hangover hosts on the show here in the near future, quote, near future, with the way I schedule and uh, edit <laughs> mm-hmm. my episodes, but you'll hear them. And Baldur's Great 3. Yeah. <laughs> Again, that's that's Tales from the Backlog. You can find it everywhere you listen to podcasts. I'm also on Twitter, Instagram, I think, that, oh, Blue Sky, also a thing. So yeah, just search it. You'll find me. It has the same logo and everything everywhere. Excellent. And as far as we are concerned, if you are hearing me say this into your ear holes right now, then that means you have in fact already found us. So congratulations. And we hope that uh, you enjoyed your stay. And if this is your first time, then, uh, then you know, we're, we're glad to have you. And if you are a return listener, then uh, we're also equally glad that you decided to come back to what is, you know, arguably just a total shit show. I don't know how we make this thing work, but we do. So, <laughs> and if you want to find out more about us, more about what we do, you want to check out all the other things that we got going on. We have made that easy for you. All you got to do is head over to linktree slash retro hangover. That's L I N K T R dot E E slash retro hangover. And you can find our socials, and our Patreon and merch store, if you'd like to support the show in that fashion, as well as our public Discord, which we highly recommend that you join because it's a it's a good time. There's always something popping off in there. Statistically, it's probably an argument about Final Fantasy, but I mean, there are other things, too. So, you know, definitely check that out. And uh, we also do things over on the Twitch, which uh, Chris is uh, legally and contractually obligated to describe to you. And so he is going to do that now on pain of uh, federal prison time. So I I know how the federal prison time can go, just like Kojima would describe it. They're going to wipe my brain and kill me with fox dice. So go to twitch.tv slash retro hangover, please, before they kill me. And you can find us at 9 p.m. Eastern time on Sundays. Because I didn't say enough, Shane is looking at me. He's about to press that button. And uh, just it's twitch.tv slash retro hangover. Please don't kill me, Shane. The government is uh, the government is our friend. All right. Well, with that all being said, I don't know why I said that all that. <laughs> I, do, I don't know. I don't know either. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest. My, my little shtick about the federal thing kind of threw myself off. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, before the, the men in the black suits kick the door down until next time. Play with your I didn't know your host would be so cute joysticks. Shane here with a quick message. You know, the one rule Chris and I have always gone by regarding advertisements is this. 
it has to be something we use and can personally vouch for. If you know me, you know I love coffee, and Bones Coffee Company has been my go-to for home brewing for quite some time now. Their small batch beans come in an impressive variety of flavors like Mint Invaders from Chocolate Space or Electric Unicorn, which I swear tastes exactly like Fruity Pebbles. And the best part? No added sugar or calories involved, just natural flavors infused right into the beans themselves. Build your own sample pack of five four ounce bags to find out which flavors speak to you, or jump in head first with full 12 ounce bags. They've even got K-Cups. Step up your homebrew game with Bones Coffee by visiting bit.ly slash RHP Bones. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash R-H-P-B-O-N-E-S.